We think hearing from our listeners is the bee's knees. To that end, you can follow at High Files on Twitter, like the High Files on Facebook, or visit onyxedgestudios.com for all sorts of altered fun. Enjoy the show and spread the love. was 2014. The month? October. Autumn was proceeding. It was still early in the season, the time when shortening days placed the descending sun along the horizon just in time for rush hour commute, filling windshields or rearview mirrors with a cool yellow flood of light. For a few brief weeks, that same fall sun created a perfect contrast of warm afternoons that sang, come outside, ditch the jacket and encroaching twilights with whispers of winter on its way. It was the time of year I loved most in Missouri. Warm and wondrous, cool and crisp, a satisfying melange of yin and yang. On one of these perfect October days, I finished my shift at work. I headed toward the door to leave, but was stopped by a co-worker who uttered five words that I had a very hard time saying no to. Want to grab a beer. Did I? As a craft beer enthusiast, I had another reason, aside from the weather, to be so stoked about the change in season. Fall was when all the best beers, from Oktoberfest lagers to pumpkin spice ales, came out to play. I hadn't worked at my job for very long, and it was quite a drive from my hometown, so I wasn't familiar with any local watering holes. I told my friend that I'd find us a place to grab said beer and text him the address. He agreed to the deal and awaited my text. As I walked out to my car, I held down the home button of my phone until it chimed, an indication I could speak a command. Brew pubs, near me, I said with a touch of alcoholic excitement. The artificial intelligence wove its miracles, pinging distant servers and running code, until a rapid reply returned the top result. I found Ferguson Brewing Company. Would you like directions? You heard correctly. Ferguson Brewing Company, located in Ferguson, Missouri. Black unemployment rate in Ferguson is three times the white unemployment rate. The incarceration rate is six times higher for blacks than it is for whites. St. Louis has a noticeably disadvantaged situation. This goes to Mr. Brown's state of mind on the day he was killed. Americans have a right to know what happened leading up to the shooting. Many gunshots in the area are reporting a spike in sales. That the people of Missouri, they have they have rights too that are guaranteed under our constitution. All of that news and associated noise was hard to miss living in the greater St. Louis area. A dead man, a cop his killer, 
A business burned to the ground. Residents, angry. Residents, afraid. Sides, picked and proclaimed on social media. In a city, its collective breath held in anticipation of a grand jury decision on the indictment of the officer involved. As for me, I just wanted a beer. But not just any beer. A good beer. And according to the online reviews, Ferguson Brewery poured a pleasing pint. Also, I was curious. What was this place called Ferguson? Before the infamous shooting, I had never heard anything about Ferguson. Suddenly, the media depicted it as a place of strife, fit for the likes of Mad Max or Snake Plissken. What do you say we play a little Bangkok rules? But if it was truly Thunderdome, I would have heard of it before. I set my course and followed my GPS. It wasn't long before I drove down Ferguson's main drag and witnessed no seething slums, no blighted landscapes dotted with concrete government-funded Gaza-like living quarters, not even the plastic strip mall panorama of the stereotypical white flight suburbs. No, Ferguson's main drag looked imagined by a postmodern version of Norman Rockwell. The town had a farmer's market, a wine bar, Chinese restaurants, a bicycle shop, stockbrokers, doctors, lawyers' offices. There was a wonderful little park built around the centerpiece of a preserved railroad caboose, which is aptly named Caboose Park. There were plenty of beauty shops and churches. For real good eating, the town had a soul food restaurant, and for the inevitable regret, a weight loss clinic in close proximity. I'm not telling you this because I'm a paid spokesman for the Chamber of Commerce. I'm merely highlighting these enterprises to create in your mind's eye a truer lay of the land. Every news report on location during the Ferguson unrest was broadcast from the burned-down quick-trip gas station or the steps of police headquarters. What we were shown on TV and what eyewitness in person told two very different tales. But more than the businesses, I noticed the people frequenting them. Men and women, blacks and whites, working, living, shopping, eating, and even drinking some ice-cold beer in peace. Now, I don't want to trivialize the very real struggles in Ferguson, but I don't want to manufacture them either. This is a report of my time spent there, and it was absolutely delightful. My friend and I had such a good time at the brewery, we decided to follow it up with a nighttime walkabout town. Again, it was thoroughly pleasant. By the end of that night, I was left with a newfound impression of Ferguson and a newly formed cognitive dissonance. My experience and the media's portrayal of the matter stood in sharp contrast. Fast forward to the decision by the St. Louis County prosecutor not to indict Officer Darren Wilson. The duty of the grand jury is to separate fact from fiction. After a full and impartial and critical examination of all the evidence in the law, and decide if that evidence supported the filing of any criminal charges against Darren Wilson. They accepted and completed this monumental responsibility in a conscientious and expeditious manner. It is important to note here and say again that they are the only people, the only people who have heard and examined every witness and every piece of evidence. They discussed and debated the evidence among themselves before arriving at their collective decision. After their exhaustive review of the evidence, the grand jury deliberated over two days, 
making their final decision. They determined that no probable cause exists to file any charge against Officer Wilson and returned a no true bill on each of the five indictments. Ferguson burned that night. People were hurt. Property was destroyed. Dignity was lost and despair was rampant. On all sides. But this program's goal isn't to rehash the region's pain. This program is for tickling your cerebral cortex. So I'm going to propose a radical idea. It wasn't as bad as it looked. Strap in, high filers. This is where things start to get heinous. The night Ferguson burned, I was at home, tucked away in my basement movie theater. But no flickering Hollywood images graced the screen. Instead, I was transfixed to the news feed. As the fan in the projector gave off its quiet hum, the screen in front of me was transformed into a real-time portal through which I gazed upon the streets of Ferguson. It was all happening on the other side of this window. Often the images were even life-size. And what made it absolutely surreal was my ability to switch camera angles. I had at my fingertips three local news feeds. Since the story was of great significance, the St. Louis stations overrode most regularly scheduled programming and simply let their cameras be all-seeing eyes. They didn't break for an episode of Glee, nor were they particularly interested in cutting to Cialis or Pepsi-Cola commercials. Also, the journalist didn't know what was going to happen next. This is a very important point. Since the situation was so unpredictable, they couldn't just shoot the action. They had to show the continuous live feed so as not to miss the real action. But you know what that ended up showing? A lot of peaceful people. A lot of scared people. A lot of confused people. But all of those are nonviolent. That's the majority. In fact, when violence did erupt, it was uncharacteristic of the scene. It would flare up suddenly, something would happen, then it would quickly dissipate. I watched for hours, and in a sense, through the miracle of technology, I was there. And guess what? Through most of the night, and in most areas, it wasn't Thunderdome. But you wouldn't know that if you tuned into a non-local news source. It was violent. Shots were fired. Protesters set fire to buildings, looted businesses throughout Ferguson. National Guard marched in. Tear gas was used. And look at those police cars burning after the National Guard comes in. A grand jury 
made a decision yesterday that uh, upset a lot of people. There's a sense of frustration with the process. It was urban combat. There are still shell casings here underfoot. Acts of violence threatened to drown out uh, those who have legitimate voices. More than 80 people arrested, 15 buildings set on fire, dozens more than that vandalized and looted. That's destructive, and there's no excuse for it. The decision may be in, but on the question of justice, the jury is still out. If you sincerely believe there's injustice in our system, let your feelings be known. These looters could not care less about Michael Brown. They are criminals. That was obvious last night. And then there are the pundits, the usual group of charlatans who will say anything to get a paycheck and attention. Coming up tonight, this is one of the structures we as a nation watched burning on national television last night. We're here in Ferguson, Missouri once again tonight. We'll talk about the violence here and its underpinnings as the rest of our country heads into Thanksgiving week. Any coverage that wasn't local told a story that was completely different from what I witnessed. I now had this 360-degree view of what was happening in Ferguson, formed by my personal visit, the local TV coverage, and even social media. When I looked at the national news, I was appalled at the bias and short-sighted reporting. They weren't telling the whole story, but of course they weren't. We know they're a con game. In any decent civics education, you should have learned the term yellow journalism. However, if that file is missing from your register, let's pause to fill in the blank. From the crowdsourced knowledge that is good old Wikipedia. Yellow journalism, or the yellow press, is a type of journalism that presents little or no legitimate, well-researched news, and instead uses eye-catching headlines to sell more newspapers. Techniques may include exaggerations of news events, scandal-mongering, or sensationalism. By extension, the term yellow journalism is used today as a pejorative to decry any journalism that treats news in an unprofessional or unethical fashion. Wow, that's pretty much all news today. What with clickbait articles where word count is slashed and JPEGs or PNG files are the stars of the show? So here's the thing. It's easy to see the news for the farce that it is. Most of us know this fact. But the problem comes when we don't react properly. Turning it off is too simple-minded. It requires zero effort. Mocking it, yeah, you Onion fans, is simple too and accomplishes nothing of positive benefit to the situation. I did the exact same shit, after all. Fox is for the right, CNN and NBC are for the left, I'm done with the whole mess. Bah humbug. But after Ferguson woke me up and opened my eyes, all three of them, I knew I had to choose a different tact. So I chose to analyze the problem. One of the things I'm decent at in my line of work is understanding things at a system level. This is a valuable skill because the conceptualization of a system invariably aids you when operating around or within it. So analyze I did. And as it turns out, there's only one thing we need to understand, high filers. All news is a news story. Surprise. We'll only touch lightly on anything resembling poli-sci. Most of the explaining will be done via story structure. Because, after all, they're new stories. So let's touch on a few of those golden Disney-Pixar secrets. As reference material, 
I'm using the book How to Watch TV News by Postman and Powers. Published in 1992, this work is incredibly relevant today when used to reveal the story components of news. From Postman and Powers As airtime approaches, the reporter at the scene is told he will lead the show and go live with a taped donut. He will then throw to the reporter in the helicopter, who will describe the scene from the air while the airborne camera person transmits pictures back. The engineering department assigns channels for the incoming signals. At airtime, the newscast begins with the anchor telling the audience about the fire, then introducing the reporter on the scene. And the broadcast is off and running. The question of why this is news and why it should be the lead on the show are easy to answer. Audiences like to see fires. Fires kill. And when people are killed, there is drama. And of course, this is live. It is happening. It creates a sense of urgency and excitement. If it should turn out that the fire was started by an arsonist, the story will take on additional meaning. If it was an act of God, well, then the story demonstrates the fragility and unpredictability of human life. In any event, it is good television. So that's it. Drama. Straight from the Disney Pixar cookbook. For simple, consistent drama, you need the following ingredients. An antagonist, a protagonist, a conflict, and finally, throw in some high stakes and see how it tastes. Let's plug Ferguson into that recipe from two angles. Angle 1. Our protagonist is Michael Brown, the gentle giant. Our antagonist is Darren Wilson, the Aryan good old boy. The conflict is murder. The high stakes are, a man goes to prison possibly for life as a racist executioner, or the blow of revenge is dealt when the local government and the police are found to be in bed together out of a mutual need to oppress minorities. That's angle one. Angle two. Our protagonist is Darren Wilson, young cop and a family man. Our antagonist, wayward violent youth, Michael Brown. The conflict is murder. The high stakes are, a man may go to prison for life as a racist executioner, unless the community can stand behind its officers and realize they are extremely brave men and women targeted by reverse racism. Or, a weak and spineless government caves to the demands of a violent uprising that causes death and destruction. See, I can write both stories derived from the same facts. Which story I go with depends on the demographic I'm catering to. After all, I don't want to lose market share. So let's try it one more time. But instead of using a national story, let's drum up a global concern. Islamic Fundamentalism Angle 1. Our protagonist is the freedom-loving, law-abiding world. Our antagonist single men of Middle Eastern descent around an average age of 21 years old belonging to the Islamic faith. The conflict is murder, kidnapping, rape, armed uprising, and war. These are the high stakes. The safety of you and your family. Terrorists can strike anywhere at any time. The only way to guarantee safety is to expunge the root of terror from your community, and that root is radical Islam. Angle 2. Our protagonist is the freedom-loving, law-abiding world. Our antagonist, ignorant, hateful, racist, and xenophobic right-wing nutjobs. The conflict 
is oppression, racial profiling, discrimination, and hate crimes. And I can't think of any higher stakes than the safety of you and your family. Right-wing fascism is on the rise and it's in your community. Muslims are being targeted by ignorant and dangerous gun-toting Islamophobes. The only way to guarantee safety is to keep the war against terrorism overseas while vehemently labeling any domestic profiling of Middle Easterners as hateful racism. We see a truth emerging. Story structure is plug and play. It's a convenient tried-and-true mold that works for Finding Nemo, and Finding Dory, Breitbart, and the Huffington Post. This is why my Ferguson experience was so revelatory. I saw the drama mold broken in front of me and studied the pieces. Once I saw the story structure system at play in quote-unquote all news, I realized my new recipe was far superior. Mix equal parts mass media, alternative media, and personal experience. I know it works, because it shattered the narrative I was given about Ferguson from any single ingredient. So can this Ferguson recipe work for other things? How about that global concern? Uh, There's a reason there was a certain group of people that attacked us on 9-11. It wasn't just, just one person, it was one religion. Not all Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslims. If you The severed pig's head was found right here behind me, thrown right in front of this mosque. And that's what the FBI is investigating tonight. They're looking for the truck that you're about to see in this video. I know next to nothing about Islam. Therefore, the only narrative in my head about Islam is the mass media message. Disbelief in this message doesn't negate the fact that it's the only message. When I see a Middle Eastern man or woman, terrorism is the first thing that pops into my head. I dismiss it immediately, but it's still the first thing. And if that wasn't the first thing, maybe guilt about feeling racist would be the first thing that pops into my head. Either way, I'm uncomfortable with the situation because of someone else's narrative. It's a mental flaw. Unpatched code in my programming. Someone else's story. With this mental flaw front and center in my awareness, I decided to take responsibility for the deficiency by throwing some alternative media at it. And like any good podcaster would do, I searched for Muslim podcasts. I listened to a few different programs before I stumbled upon a podcast called A Muslim Pearl in a Western Shell. When I clicked on the first episode, this is what I heard. When you turn 
on the television and see ISIS and the Taliban, what comes to mind? What about when you hear the words Muslim fanatic or Muslim terrorists? I bet it's rage, disgust, horror, and maybe even confusion. Does Islam breed terrorism? Is ISIS the peak of Islamic Sharia law? Is ISIS what all Muslims strive to be? I mean, it can't be. Any rational person would come to that conclusion, right? But then again, why are all these so-called Muslims killing innocent people in the name of this God of theirs and their prophet? I'm here to get to the bottom of it, to answer all the unanswered questions, to educate, to empower, but to also challenge you. Welcome to the podcast, A Muslim Pearl in a Western Shell, and I am your host, Khadija. I can't think of an equivalent to such a show in the mainstream media. Khadija's presentation packs a wallop of information. She manages to educate listeners, myself being one, about simple matters of faith and culture as well as complex global issues. After a couple hours of listening to her show, I felt my perception of Islam shifting, growing, maturing. I knew it was something I should have done a long time ago. But... What about that third ingredient? Maybe I was getting ahead of myself. I still had no personal interaction or connection to this topic. Sure, I had a counterbalance to the cable news viewpoint, but had no data from my viewpoint. To that point, I was a passive participant in this story. Well, the only cure for passivity is action. I reached out to Khadija through Facebook and started a dialogue. I wanted to understand this brave woman. I wanted to share a conversation with someone who felt equally disenfranchised by the media. And I wanted to experience the sense of oneness that comes when two seemingly different people set aside their respective differences in an attempt to make a momentary bright spot in the world. What you are about to hear is what happens when two souls step out of stereotypical story structure and step into their humanity. Strap in high filers. This is an incredible journey. Think of what you're saying. You can get it wrong and still you think that it's all right. Think of what I'm saying. We can work it out and get it straight or say good night. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life is very short and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. So there's another podcast I listen to called You Made It Weird, and it's kind of like a comedy podcast, basically. But there was an episode that really struck me as kind of a cool way to open up because the host got set up with this guest. I think it was through like a booking agency. So they didn't know each other. There was no like reaching out of one way or the other for them to get contacted. The guest was a little bit nervous. She's like, I don't know what we're going to talk about for three hours. The episodes are normally three hours long. And you could just tell in her voice how nervous she was. And he said, well, we definitely have something in common. And she said, how would you know that? You don't even know me. He goes, we both have moms. And <laughs> and they just started from there. And amazingly, they, they built that. So that's why when I sent you those questions, I wanted to start with podcast questions because we don't know each other. But if you think about it, we both have that in common already off the bat. We have podcasts. So 
the first question. I'm going to try not to read from this piece of paper too much. But did you like podcasts and were you a fan of them before uh, you started your own or did it just kind of pop up as, as something that, you know, was completely new to you? And if you were a fan, what shows inspired you? interesting you say that because you're not the first person to ask that question you know a lot of people bring that question up because you know podcasting tends to be this relatively new medium you know um before i started my podcast i actually had no idea what podcast was i was totally (laughs) totally oblivious to that side of the world i came to know of podcasting when my husband actually came up to me and told me that there was going to be a, a podcasting conference back in 2004 15, 15. So he kind of just handed me the the invitation and I was like, okay, but I don't know what a podcast is. He said, well, you know, you have an idea, but this is something brand new. It's something that's growing. It's something that most people wouldn't think of creating a show with your topic in this segment, basically. So I decided to give it a try. I went to the conference and all I had was this idea. You know, all I had was I want to create a show to bridge the gap between the Muslim and non-Muslim world. That's it. I didn't know how to get started. I didn't know anything about podcasting, nothing, software, microphones. I had absolutely no knowledge. So when I went to the to the conference, you know, we, we had people that had already established a show and were already making money off of it. You had people that had no idea what a podcast was. So it was very diverse. And when I was telling people about my idea... I remember at the time people were like passing out their business cards and I was like, I don't even have, (laughs) I can write my email for you on a piece of paper, but I don't really have a card, you know? So they were telling me that your idea is going to take off, you know, because we're in such a controversial time and we really need this type of information out there. So I had gotten started with my podcast originally back in September of last year. Um, I was on a platform with kind of, it was kind of like a channel with two other shows, other right. kind of based on thinking logically, being more open to other people's views kind of thing. So I was on that platform for about four months. Things didn't really go as planned until I kind of, if you want to say, kind of dropped out of it, didn't really do anything in terms of my podcast. And then I totally relaunched, rebranded in July 2016. So just a couple months ago. So I kept the basic idea. I kept the name. Um, I just rebranded everything and started from scratch. So if we check out your show, we're getting like the 2.0 version. Basically. Oh, that's super cool. For myself, I kind of got into it because when I, I was in the military before I was in the Navy, and when I got out of that, I ended up with a job where I was allowed to wear headphones all day if I wanted to. And a lot of people just listen to music all day. And I started to think, you know, this is a a golden opportunity to learn some new things, you know, and I started looking into audiobooks at first, but audiobooks are pretty expensive and I could go through one a week. Uh, and then that's how I found podcasts was it supplemented my time in between purchasing audiobooks. And, um, you know, if you like something enough, uh, eventually you'll want to imitate it. That's what I'm doing now. But I, that's so, that's a crazy story that you have of how you got into podcasting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think it, it's unique. So you touched on this lightly, but maybe you'd like to go more in depth. Your podcast uh, debuted in, around the June, July time. 
uh, at least the 2.0 version. So since that time, what have you learned about podcasting since the relaunch? And, you know, if you could go back and even do the relaunch since it happened a few months ago, is there anything you'd do differently? See, that's kind of a tough question to answer because when I started out, I had lots of issues. And the second time around, I knew to fix them. You know, I knew what to do. I knew um, I actually hired a coach the second time around. So I had a podcasting coach kind of uh, giving me tips on social media, what types of mics to use, which software is the best, so on and so forth. So for me to tell you that there's certain things that I would do differently the second time around, it would be a little bit difficult because I already fixed my mistakes from the first time, you know. But I mean, I'm, I'm still relatively new. It's been like two, two and a half months. But as of now, what I would say is, and this is kind of already a goal that I have, but to do video plus audio. So kind of like, right. uh, you know, my a YouTube channel, for example, or some sort of um, interview segments with, that are live or, you know, something mm-hmm. of that sort. Because I feel like my message is also very visual. You know, I wear a scarf and I feel like because I am a hijabi and I... I dress in a certain way and I carry myself in a certain way that makes my message a lot more authentic you know and gives me kind of like a road or a journey if you will that kind of signifies a lot more for me and for my message oh that makes a lot of sense a lot of the podcasts that I listen to are from stand-up comedians and well the interesting thing is they're usually not even about comedy but every once in a while the popular ones as they go on the road they'll do like their act but they'll follow it up with a live podcast where the audience can do like a Q&A session. And then, so there's a, a, a real life visual component and an interactive component. And then after it's over, they just take that audio and throw it up as a live episode. So I think that could be something that maybe you could look into also if you're able to go to any of these podcast conventions or maybe conventions that aren't related to podcasts, but they're related to your subject matter. That'd be pretty neat too. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, there's definitely lots of possibilities. Yeah, the the range of uh, taking you know the the message that I have and kind of projecting it out is really diverse. And that's actually one of the things that I critiqued about Noor Taguri in her you know Playboy interview. Um, I just want to touch on that real brief. I don't want to go into it really deeply, but um, I just basically gave my opinion as to the fact that we're not that desperate as Muslims to get our voice out there through Playboy, you know? Like, there's so many other ways for us to get our message across, to educate on what we have to say and and our beliefs and our faith. So kind of taking that medium, in my personal opinion, wasn't the best. But I feel like there's so many different ways that we can touch people's lives. And especially with podcasting right now, because it's something so new, it's something that many people are are, are giving a try. You know, like everybody wants to podcast right now because um, the amount of donors you can potentially have, the amount of money that people are basically having their, like supporting their families. It's just something so new and so raw. So everything and everyone is kind of running towards that. Well, what I like about it too is that it has this super low barrier of entry. Basically, 
my kids could have their own podcast if they really yeah. wanted to, and uh, it wouldn't have to make sense or anything, but I could show them really easy how to put it up, and they could, they could do it completely on their own. But the other thing that I think is awesome about podcasts and why people should be running to it, like you said, is they're evergreen. They can stay there, and they can be accessible. Um, some of the best podcasts that I've listened to, they aired four years ago. Uh, if that was a radio program or a segment on TV or even a magazine, the odds of me finding that would be very, very slim. Exactly. I want to get a lot into your message and what's going on behind your show, but I think it would be remiss of me to just try to say, oh, here's my guest, and she is a Muslim, and we're going to talk about that stuff, because ultimately that's a part of you. That's not all of you. So I had sent you some questions so we could relate on an everyday human level before diving into that subject matter. So uh, one of the first ones was, and, and these might seem a little silly at the surface, but hopefully they'll elicit some great answers. Uh, so let's say you had your day completely planned. You know, you had to do some meetings. You had to do some podcast recording, all the other things, running errands, spending time with your husband. And then all of a sudden you found out that your schedule got completely wiped clear and you just had the day all to yourself. What do you do with that day? It's a good question. Now, I immediately thought to myself, like, okay, I'd record a couple extra shows because it's really easy to get far behind. Yeah. <laughs> If I had that free time, I'd squeeze in as much as I can, but that's kind of off the table, obviously. So in terms of what I would do, I would have to say spend time with family. You know, my husband's family lives here in Florida and um, my family lives up in Canada. I'm, I'm actually Canadian. And so I would have to say just spending quality time with my in-laws, with my sisters-in-laws, with my nieces, with my nephews, like I'm very family oriented. So that would be my very first pick, you know, just it might even be just going over there saying, hey, how are you? You know, just a five, 10 minute talk and then pick up myself and leave. But that's pretty much where most of my time goes and my free time, actually. And it, that's what gives me fulfillment. You know, that's what makes me happy that spending that quality time with family, working on those types of relationships, other than the things that are hobbies slash things I have to do, you know, because <laughs> I consider volunteering a hobby. I would consider, you know, working on my podcast as a hobby or studying for school is something that I have to do. So all of that would go into the basically the chunk that you gave me, you know, all the things right. I have to do schedules clear. So it's family. For me, it's it's that's the part that hits home. You know, that's where I spend most of my time. And that's where I want to spend my time. And what kind of uh, things do, do you and your family like to do together? Uh, I mean, it, it's different for Different members, yeah. Person. Like I would say my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law is the typical shopping. My husband wouldn't like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, As a husband, so, I, I sympathize with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just I, I, I look up to them. I like their taste. I really do. I, I love my mother-in-law, contrary to popular belief that people think that, you know, the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law shouldn't get along. I consider my mother-in-law like my second mom, honestly. Right. So I like her taste. I like her opinion on things. So uh, with them, that would be my preferred medium. Um, with my nieces and nephews, I just, I love kids. I was a teacher. I was a second grade teacher a year ago. So I already thought you were brave and now I know you were a second grade teacher as well. So <laughs> 
Oh, I only survived a year, and I was like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> Being totally frank with you, I still love kids, but it's difficult when you're dealing with other people's kids, other people's issues, other people's um, circumstances, if you will. You know, you have to kind of be their mom and their aunt and their nurse and their caregiver and all that stuff. But with my nieces and nephews, it's it's pure enjoyment. You know, you get to see the innocence that kids really do have. So I love spending time with them and being silly with them. I just, that's my passion, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I, with my kids, I know what, first of all, it's rare to be able to spend time with them that's just quiet time. I mean, they're around a lot, but they're doing their thing. I'm doing my thing. And, um, yeah, it's just tough to get that quality time. All right, so let me uh, keep rolling through here then. Um Okay, so this one's it's hard for people to admit this, but I know that we all have some sort of anxiety when we think about the future because the future is full of hope but also uncertainty. Um, so do you experience any anxiety, real or imagined, uh, regarding what the future may hold for you? See, that's a, also a question that I felt like depends on context, you know, also depends on the role that I'm speaking to you with, like as soon-to-be mom, obviously, I have anxiety for my kids, you know, what the future holds for them, so on and so forth. For my family, you know, every family has its ups and downs, every family has its trials and its tests. So, you know, I worry about them, I have anxiety for them, but I feel like something that would, or probably should say that the one thing that really freaks me out and gives me anxiety is the base or the way that the Muslims are being treated in this country or viewed in this country so far. You know, I was born and raised in the West, never been to the Middle East, consider myself a Westerner, you know. I only came to the U.S. again about almost two years ago, and I was born and raised in Canada. So I have those types of Western values that I'm very proud of, I'm very fond of. But in terms of what's happening right now to the Muslim world, we're seen as the bad guy to everybody. You know, like in terms of ISIS, for example, we're being attacked by ISIS because they're killing Muslims they're killing anybody that does not agree with what they have to say or what their beliefs are. Um, and they're hijacking the religion for their psychotic ways. I personally believe that all basically all um, ISIS soldiers and ISIS supporters are clearly psychopaths. Like they have issues, right. you know, so we're being attacked through that domain. But you also have the media that's kind of misconstruing what Islam truly is or any any issue or anything that comes up that could potentially be, be related to Islam. We have to post it on Fox News or CNN for days, you know, and we're brainwashing these people that Muslims equal terrorists, Muslim equal barbar barbarics. You know what I mean? Like it's for Muslims, we're being attacked by for so many different ways and so many different paths. And then you have the, you know, the American that basically takes its information from ISIS and the media, and they're basing what they believe on, on Muslims and the faith and, and Islam from that ignorant side, you know? So we're being, we're being attacked from so many different domains and so many different areas. It's like, okay, I might be able to handle this now, and I'm taking all of the negative experiences that I'm having and I'm basically motivating myself to create this podcast, you know, to educate people, right. to bridge the gap, 
to show people what, no, this is what Islam truly is. And take it from me, I'm a practicing Muslim and I will give you proofs. I'm not just going to spin crap out of nowhere. Right. You know? So you take, you, by acknowledging the fact that there's anxiety, you can turn it into fuel more easily. And then instead of just blame storming the environment around you. Exactly. Because blaming and pointing fingers isn't really going to get us anywhere, let's be honest. Right. And I don't think that a lot of non-Muslims appreciate what you just articulated is that any radical group, whether it be ISIS or, you know, the newest group that pops up, they're just as much your enemy, you know, as anybody else. And But when the media t- tends to lump all Muslims together under this... Uh, umbrella, even though they don't do it intentionally, but sometimes the sin of omission, you know, is just uh, just as bad. I, I don't think people appreciate that. Myself, my wife is African American, and our children are biracial. And one of the anxieties that I have is that they'll be in a similar situation where they'll feel uh, tension from both sides of their heritage and feel stuck in the middle. And I've I've had some friends who are biracial, and they've said. It's easier almost to pick and just say, I don't acknowledge this side. Um, Because when you're young, then at least half the world will make sense to you at that point. So I hope that the people that are listening to this can think of your problem from a new perspective and and realize that you're very much caught in the middle. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it goes for every minority group, to be honest with you. You know, it goes for... Blacks, it goes for the Hispanic community, it goes for the Mexican community, the Muslim community, you know, like these are all considered the minority groups here in the United States. And everybody has their issues. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, woe me, like I have so many negative experiences and nobody's experienced like the Muslims experience. No, you know, there's, there's people out there, specifically the, the people that have lost their lives or their families have, have lost a loved one due to ISIS or due to Boko Haram or due to any of the terrorist um, explosions or shootings that have occurred in the past year and a half. No, they have suffered. You know, and we stand with that. Absolutely. I personally stand with that. You know, you have gone through so much. And losing a loved one, name of vanity, is, is not something that can easily be forgiven. You know, so I understand that there is a lot of misconstrued ideas, but there's also a lot of pain. Personally, like, I I do feel the need to apologize for these people, and and, uh, obviously I pray for them, but I do feel like, okay, I I am here apologizing, and I am here standing with you, but at the same time, this group doesn't represent me, so I don't have anything to apologize for. No, that that makes a lot of sense, and I think when you mention the fact that you do pray for them, it... That that's goes across the board for all humans, you know. But then you can separate the human from their behavior, and that's what you can't, you know, you can't put up with. Exactly. So, Definitely. All right. So let's see. What else did I have on here besides your personal relationship with God, which you speak freely on your podcast um, about your faith, which is one of the greatest things I like about it because I actually get to learn something about it. So besides your relationship with God, what else gives you a sense of fulfillment in your life? Two things, educating and having a sense of belonging. You know, I feel like just having the, just the idea that somebody could potentially take my podcast with having one specific view, you know, or having one specific mindset. And I challenge them to think totally different and accept 
you know, the, to a certain extent, accept the faith for what it truly is. That gives me so much fulfillment to know that I changed somebody's outlook on what my faith represents and what I represent as a Muslim woman. And that just doesn't go for Islam. You know, it goes for the Jewish faith. It goes for the Christian faith. It goes for anybody that's a good person, you know, yeah, do you find it's hard, uh, especially in Western culture, to even bring up the topic of true faith? Yes. So do because, I. <laughs> so that's yes. why I asked. Yes, because I feel like it's kind of considered uh, kind of like a taboo topic. Like mm-hmm. you can't discuss religion anymore. Re- religion is kind of the thing of the past. Or modern people are not religious, which is something I don't agree with at all. Well, the, I feel like I was going to say the funny thing about that you mentioned a sense of belonging is that um, Jews and Christians and Muslims should realize they actually have more in common with each other than with the people that don't want to hear about any of it. Exactly, and that's the thing that I really try to push. You know, the commonalities, the things that we do have together, and the things that do have a basis in all three of the Abrahamic religions. You know, because. There's obviously lots of stereotypes. There's obviously lots of biases in terms of like the Muslims and the Jews, for example, or the the Muslims and the Christians. There's lots of misunderstood beliefs. When in reality, if you look down to the details and you look down to the foundation, we're pretty much the same. You know, it's seriously, it's, it's more of the politics that's trying to construe things or like in terms of, you know, the Muslims and the Jews, it's more of like, Israel versus Palestine issue, you know, or like it's, it's more politics than religion. And if we kind of look down to the basis of religion, we'll realize that we have a lot more in common than we think. And that uh, we're going to get into talking a lot about religion, hopefully here. And that's one of the reason reasons that I wanted to reach out was because there's something in my church and when i say my church i don't mean the specific building but i mean you know just kind of the overarching way that the message is coming out in society these days because if you go back a couple hundred years all of us would be the most disgusting sinners you've ever seen you know in western (laughs) culture but uh so something that pervades is it seems like there's like a top 10 list that they keep preaching you know like you go in on sunday and after you've attended for a you know, a few months in a row, the same themes keep coming up. But when you actually start to read the Bible, all this stuff that isn't maybe fodder for the greatest sermon ever is the stuff that ties us together with the other religions. And and that's what's really opened my heart recently and made me want to know more about your beliefs. Definitely. I agree 100%. You know, once we look down to, like you said, the basics, You know, the basics are you care for your brother, you don't do any harm, you respect your neighbor. You know, there's so many things that it's it's the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like one of those things that do we really have to discuss it? You know, like it's so common sense. It's so logical. It's there. But we don't discuss it. And I think that's the problem. That is the problem, you know, because in the past couple hundred years, if you want to say, Um, we've been focusing more on the differences, you know, like many people, for example, I discuss this a lot in my podcast. Many people think that Muslims hate Jesus, you know, like there's this belief out there that Muslims despise Jesus, don't celebrate his, you know, birthday, the Christmas Mm -hmm. day, 
um, we, we don't have anything to do with Jesus. When in reality, like if you think about it, we have a chapter in the Quran that's dedicated solely to the Virgin Mary. Really? You I know? did not know that. Yeah, a whole chapter in the Quran <laughs> dedicated to her. We believe that Jesus is considered, um, he's not considered the Son of God, but he's considered the Word of God, considered a prophet, considered the Messiah. We believe that Jesus comes back at the end of time with the grandson of the prophet. So there's so many commonalities, but just because we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, people assume that, oh, well, Muslims hate Jesus, and he has no basis in the religion, so on and so forth. You know, but he's considered one of the top five prophets. He's considered really high up there for us, you know? And you would think if you were a Christian who wanted to share your message by focusing on the 99% similarity, you'd be able to have a conversation. But if you focus on the 1% difference, uh, you already decided I'm not going to have that conversation, which the funny thing is, if your mission is to convert that 1%, you're never going to do that if you don't have a conversation. Exactly. And I'm not. I'm not saying that every conversation should have you know changing someone's mind as the goal. In fact, that's probably what stops the conversations um, for the most part. I would say. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we're here to like. Why can't we agree to disagree? You know. Yeah. I'm not here to convert you. Like that's my. Like who am I to be put in that? position you know what i mean and you're not here to convert me like all we're doing is we're having a simple conversation just so that i can understand you more and you can understand me more absolutely okay so i want we're already deep into religion so i want to keep going but i i would love to hear your answer to this question if you had to give famous last words what would they be my famous last words so i had written down a quote it's by the um, cousin of the prophet that we highly revere, Imam Ali. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, I have a little bit. Yeah. So it states that if a person is not your brother in faith, he is your equal in humanity. And I personally live by that and try my best to live by that day by day through my podcast. You know, that if you're not my brother or sister in Islam, um, then you're my equal in humanity. We're considered the same. You know, you deserve my respect, you deserve my help, you deserve my utmost care. Even if you're not of the same faith as me, that doesn't mean that I have to discriminate against you. You know, that's interesting because when I wrote the question, of course, you know, writing it made me think, well, what would I say? And I wanted to to quote the Bible, and the part that always sticks with me is when they were trying to get... uh, Jesus to basically be like a lawyer and say, hey, I want you to tell me, you know, what's the the top commandment, you know, and then what are all the sub-commandments under it? And he said, well, here you go. Here, here are the two top commandments. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, that's the exact same thing you said, just different words. Exactly. It's just different terminology. Right. Yeah. So let, let's transition to, to focusing on... Uh, on Islam solely because I want to learn. Um, this is kind of my selfish way to, to interview you, and I'll put out hopefully a great podcast, but I'm also personally learning um, about Islam. So most media is not known for its depth or its context. It's very drive-by, you know, let's do a 30-second clip, let's make it exciting as possible, and put a bunch of flashy graphics on the screen. Um, but knowing that that's the kind of time frame you're given, if you were ever to 
let's say, get on Fox News or CNN or given a, a platform at a huge rally in D.C. or something like that, what would you say in those 30 seconds on air on a, on a major news outlet to portray Islam to a huge Western audience? What I would, sta- what I would state is don't look at the so-called Muslims that the entire world despises and depicts as murderers for your understanding of the Muslim faith, I would say look at the Qur'an, you know, look at the context of the Qur'an, read the Qur'an, understand the Qur'an, and once we do that, we will understand what the faith is, you know. The things that are in the Qur'an and the things that are not in the Qur'an are there for a reason, and it's under a very strict context, it's under a specific context, you know, in order for us to basically live our lives. So what I would state, pretty much part of this 30 seconds. I'm uh, sorry, Khadija, your 30 seconds are up. We're going to have to cut to uh, a story about the newest Mercedes-Benz that's coming out. <laughs> the 2017 CLA. Mercedes-Benz. The best or nothing. <laughs> Uh, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. My message is still a little bit more important than the new Mercedes. Um, <laughs> but I would just simply add to that is don't take what Muslims are doing. Take what Islam truly says and what the scripture truly says. You know, even though that, that requires you to read, it requires you to do some work. It requires you to get up off the couch and actually do something. But that's the point of life. It kind of is like that old saying, believe none of what you hear and half of what you see. But that means go investigate it for yourself. And a lot of times there have, I've heard Christian messages and then I go back and check the source documentation and realize, what were they talking about? You know, that quote they just attributed to the Bible is just, you know, some theologian's quote from the 1800s or something like that. It's not even in the Bible. So... I think that's excellent, excellent advice. One thing that is, I guess, kind of gets a bad rap, maybe that's not the right way to say it because this is a very serious subject matter, but you have in the Christian faith what they call fire and brimstone preachers. Have you ever heard that term? Not really. Okay, so a lot of their sermons are highlighting sin, like that's their main topic, and they're called fire and brimstone preachers because they're emphasizing stop now, repent, or you're going to hell where there's fire and brimstone. So what I was wondering, well, actually, let me just say that I went back to the Bible recently, and I just did like a control F to try to find the word hell or the grave or anything in the Bible and how many times it comes up. And I was interested to find that it doesn't come up as often as you would think. Meaning the message is more geared towards love and hope and redemption and less towards fear. But that just made me think in general, well, what does the Quran say about a heaven and a hell? And does it give descriptions of these places? Does it let people know what it would be like if you end up there? Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you say that because... You're going to find those kinds of people in all religions, to be honest with you. You know, the people that focus so much on the negative, like you you can't do this because it's forbidden and we you, you can't act in this way because you're going to go to hell. You know, these are concepts that are present in every religion, to be honest with you. And I believe it's based on 
a kind of a lack of understanding and a lack of trying to get the correct message out. You know, instead of instilling fear in someone, you're supposed to give it to them logically. You know, have give give a certain argument if you're trying to make and a way that the person is going to understand it. We're logical human beings. We use our minds to think. You know, if you're trying to scare someone into a certain tactic or into a certain way of life, they're just going to veer off the road the minute they get away from you. That's my personal belief. Um, but back to the question in terms of heaven and hell. Um, the Quran does mention you know, heaven and hell. Obviously, it's there. Um, I have the verses here for you, so I, I am willing to quote them. Please but do, yeah. In terms of heaven, we believe that heaven has seven ranks. And in between those seven ranks, there's kind of like subsets, if you will. So the more good you do and the more deeds that you have, the higher your rank is going to be. So it's kind of described here in kind of like the eternal abode. You know, it's it's paradise. There's rivers, rivers flowing of sweet water. There's endless, endless food, endless pleasure, that kind of thing. So I want to quote a couple verses of the Quran here for you. Um, that speaks specifically about paradise. Chapter 13, verse 35 states, its produce is eternal and its shade that is recruitable for the God-fearing. Chapter 47, verse 15, there in our sweet rivers of water. Chapter 38, verse 40, uh, 52, and with the maidens of equal age restraining their glances. Verily the inmates of paradise shall on the day be busy rejoicing them and their spouse. Now, it's inter interesting when you look at heaven because there's this mention of huris or the concept of the virgins that the west yeah and that's about. a that's an easy one that people latch on to and like you said never go to the source documentation so i would love to know more about that exactly it's really interesting because nowhere in the quran does it say 72 virgins <laughs> like yeah, i kind of had a feeling <laughs> that number does not exist 72 virgins does not exist that's one Two, there is no authentic tradition and there's no Quranic verse that states that you're going to get 72 virgins for blowing somebody up. I put that out there. It's, it's basic. It doesn't exist. Now, they do mention the virgins in, in heaven. But what's interesting to note is, A, there's obviously virgins or huris for women that come as men. So for women, there's going to be male huris. So it's not this concept that you know, um, heaven is full of just female virgins because it's right. only men that are going to enter into heaven. You know, there's that misconstrued idea. And then there's also another belief that states that if a husband and wife are both pious and loving, caring for each other in this life, that they will be each other's holy virgins in paradise, you know, because they complete one another, they love one another. So that's what they're going to be for each other. It's kind of like the eternal friendship. There's that belief as well. But they, there is Quranic verses as well that they mention that people of heaven, um, they will get the wide-eyed virgins. That's chapter 56, verse 22. Uh, we shall espouse them with wide-eyed virgins. Again, it's that concept that they're very beautiful. They, it's like nothing you've ever seen. So that concept of heaven, the concept of eternal pleasure, um, whatever you want, you're going to get, basically, mm -hmm. is for the people that do good. You know, that you, you, you follow the law, you follow what God has asked of you. We believe personally that this is also something that's contrary to popular belief. You, I don't want to say you have to be a Muslim in order to enter heaven, but if you're following your faith to the 
best of your ability and you truly believe that this is the truth, then God is the only judge and you might one day enter heaven. You know what I mean? Like it's people state that, oh, you can only be a Muslim to enter into heaven. Like that's kind of like a, a basis in Islamic thought when in reality, that's not the truth. You know, God knows what you're what you're going through. God knows what um, your faith is. And if you're following your faith to the truest, to the T, and you believe that this is it, I can't tell you that because you're a non-Muslim, you can't enter into heaven. You know, so that's also something that's really misunderstood. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's misunderstood in uh, my own religion, too, I believe. I, I don't have the verse in front of me, but there is a verse that says basically that exact same thing, like God will weigh the heart. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I liked to, you know, stir up trouble. And so I saw a Catholic priest in a bookstore one time. And this is before I really gave my heart to God and, and grew into my faith. So I came over and I asked him, you know, the classic question, well, what about the Native Americans? You know, what they had no chance. They didn't have the word and all this stuff. And it's a very childish way to pose the question, but the the argument's still there. Hey, what about these people? What if they lived a, a very pure life in accordance with everything that they would have been told had they heard it, but they never heard it? And uh, he... And that's when he quoted that verse in the Bible. And I'll, I'll try to look it up and put it in this show if there's a good opportunity. But it says God weighs the heart. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Exactly. That's the whole point, you know, that that's the ultimate truth. It would make no sense for me to say that somebody that has, let's say, based on your question, like somebody that has no access to internet, no access to books or reading or any, or anything, because they're stuck in a tradition that's, that's all that they've learned their whole life. Can you blame them? You know, I mean, that's their truth. That's what they believe is to be true. So I'm not God to sit and say that, because you're not a Muslim or because you're not a Christian, because you're not a Jew, you're not going to be in, you're not going to go into heaven. And I think, I think it's important how you said it, who am I to judge means we're not saying that those people are going either, but we're <laughs> also not saying that they're not because we're not the ones who judge. Exactly. Exactly. Like I can't, I'm not going to pick and choose who goes into heaven. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I find that so silly and ignorant for somebody to make, you know, it's not up to you. Leave it up to God. He knows what's in everybody's heart. He knows what everybody's practicing. That's his job, not mine. All right, so lay some fire and brimstone on me. What about hell? <laughs> hell, that's an interesting topic. Okay, so I do have verses for that, but it's kind of basically along the same line. So there's seven ranks as well, subsets to that rank. Basically, the more evil you did or the more harm that you did, you spend more time in heaven, but uh, sorry, in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong mistake there. But um, it's interesting because in terms of hell, nobody will eternally abide in hell in Islamic thought unless they were considered polytheistic. So they attributed more than one partner to God. So in Islam, that's considered the highest kind of form of injustice that you can do towards God. But if you believed in God, if you were a good person, but you made a couple mistakes in your life, the Quran states that you're not going to abide in hell forever. You know, you suffer as much as you, the evil that you committed 
towards your own soul and then you will enter into the graceful paradise so in islam it's considered that polytheism is is the basically the worst sin that you can make and even that i guess is is up for debate again i'm not god i'm not one to say that if you practice this way your whole life then and and you thought that it was the truth then you know you have to ab- abide in, in in this eternal hell um again this is all context based this is all what i've done my research on and what i've read right. and just portraying it out to, to everyone so again hell is considered it's hell you know what I mean? like, yeah it's, not gonna be fun <laughs> <laughs> i mean like i can explain as much as i can but it's up for you know your imagination to take so here are some quranic verses that i found um chapter 992 verses 14 to 15 now i have warned you of a fire that flames to which none but the most wretched shall be exposed um here shall be exposed to the fire basically means the eternal abiding fire so that's what god states another verse chapter 4 verses 56 surely those who disbelieve in our signs we shall certainly expose them to a fire again like the context here it's exposed mm-hmm. you know not necessarily that you are going to abide and abode like and, and you're going to stay in hell forever kind of thing so it's interesting to note that um the last quote uh, the last verse i'm sorry that i have is chapter 5 verses 36 verily those who disbelieve even if they have what is in the earth all of within it that they may ransom themselves with it from the punishment of the day of resurrection it shall not be accepted from them so Again, it's all based on context that if you did do bad and you didn't think about the day of resurrection and the day of judgment, you will taste hell, but it's not like you're going to abide in there forever unless you committed the greatest sin, which is polytheism. Right. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned those verses because that's very similar to the way the Bible describes hell, which is in these very short, quick little brush strokes. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? It's not like, yeah. oh, and here's how terrible it's going to be. And on Monday, this is the kind of torture you're going to get. And on Tuesday, it's going to be this. So I don't really know where, maybe it's just my problem, but you know, you have depictions, especially in Western uh, media, of a terrible place, you know, where there's demons and it's just terrifying. But at the same time, I kind of started thinking, well, why would this be the message of how it's chosen to be put in the Bible? And a lot of the references to hell were around the time where uh, Greek culture and language were very pervasive across the, the Western world. So how would you get your message of an underworld across to people of that time? You would compare it to Hades and those visions of fire and things. But the other thing I thought of was, did people back then really think of fire as a bad thing or a fire that could burn out that wretchedness, you know? And you mentioned the fact that they don't abide in there forever. Well, I think of a fire that comes along and burns down, you know, an old growth forest. And then the next thing you know, hey, there's finally new life. But all the the bad things that were killing the forest are gone and now it can finally grow to who it was supposed to be. Maybe I'm reading too much context into both traditions, but uh, I just like to think of it from both sides. You know, okay, maybe it is a a place to be completely terrified, but maybe it's also God's way of solving a problem. 
you know, you really botched it on Earth. Let's let's get that part out of you, and then uh, and then see what happens from there. Exactly. It's interesting to note because it's kind of like a cleansing process, the way I personally think of it. When I read these kinds of things and how you know if you committed certain sins or if you did certain things that you shouldn't have done in your life, you know, you do taste hell for a little bit. For me, I consider it kind of like, yes, it may be a form of a punishment, but God is cleansing my soul. You know, like you're you're going through, like you said, like that cleansing, cleaning process, just like the forest kills off, the the fire kills off all those, um, the, 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 the dead trees and things like that. Exactly. You know, all the things that have no basis anymore, or there's no positive that's going to come from it to make way for the new and the, and the good and, and the positive and the happy and the tranquil. And you know what I mean? So the way I see it is it may, it may be a cleansing process, you know, that in order for me to enter heaven, I have to be pure and I have to be clean and, and light and all sort, all things positive, you know? So that's personally, that's also a, a, a way that I look, like to see it. You know, I do believe that it is some sort of punishment, yes, but it might also be, like I said, like a cleansing process. Yeah, and I think hell's an important topic because we both mentioned the fact that we have trouble bringing up our faith in a secular world, but I think a lot of that is people get terrified by the idea of um, they're either going to have to do something about their life or they can just run away from the topic altogether. And unfortunately, that's the soft option. So that's what a lot of people do. And hell becomes this sticking point for them that keeps them from wanting to have the conversation. So I'm glad that you and I were able to bring it up and interpret it a little bit differently. Although we're not we're not God, God himself, first of all. But we're also not theologians or experts. But we are people and we can we can kind of interpret these things for ourselves based on the message God's put in our heart, I think. Definitely. I totally agree with that. I feel like, you know, having these kinds of discussions kind of open doors people don't want to open, you know, kind of open discussions that people don't want to feel judged, but at the same time don't want to sit down and kind of take in their lives and and what they're doing. And, And I speak to myself first, you know, like, Yes, we're talking about health here, but when it comes down to it, we're downright scared, you know? Mm -hmm. That's something that all the actions that I'm doing here, all the ones that I I thought that I wasn't going to basically get punished for or things that slipped away and nobody thought of, there's going to be a day where all of that is going to come and hit me in the face. You know, like if I ever did injustice to anybody, if I ever disrespected someone, if I ever... Now, I'm not talking about, like, the big, you know, crime. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, I'm talking about, like, the day-to-day misinterpretations, day-to-day misunderstandings that we do that basically seem harmless. But I may have hurt another person, or I may have have, uh, done injustice to another person, you know? So I feel like, even to myself, even when I look at, my own personally personal doings it's it's like okay there's gonna come a day where it's gonna be an open book you know see all of that that i've done i'm going to see everything that i have forgotten and that freaks me out you know like 
imagine a person that has done some something really really unjust to someone in the past you know like a rapist or um a pedophile or someone that did something super indecent totally regrets it but shut that door doesn't want to think about it you know and i'm here bringing it up and talking about hell and heaven and forgiveness and 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 you know the cleansing process so on and so forth like they're gonna feel super guilty they're to them they just they shut that door don't want to think about it like i don't want to admit to myself that i've done wrong yeah it's i find that viewing god as being able to see every little deep dark secret people see that as terrifying and at times i've seen it as terrifying but i also see it as a weight off my shoulders you know i go through the real world every day trying to hide my imperfections like before, leading up to this interview i was nervous to talk to you i don't i don't know why but it was there and i'm like no 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 let's you know hide that and she doesn't need to know that i'm nervous well i've blown that now you know <laughs> um but you don't have it's freeing to know that you don't have to hide from god because you can't you know mm -hmm. so you don't have to act like you do in the the everyday world so he's kind of like the all-seeing you know like he knows he knows everything like the way I think about it is, you know, if I'm in pain, if I'm going through something really tough, if I'm going through a certain experience where I feel like nobody understands how tough it really is on me, like, I'm good. He knows. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, he has my back. He is there for me even when I forget it. And like you said, it's a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. All right, I've taken almost an hour of your time, so I'll try to get through these uh, um, as quickly as we can, although I don't want to sacrifice substance in the name of time. So please f feel free to go in depth as you like. I think in the Western world we hear a lot about Muhammad, and more and more these days it's very, very negative. Like the Charlie Hebdo stuff that happened in France with you know, the, the cartoons of Muhammad, and as a Westerner, who has no background in Islam, and you won't find that kind of outrage per se this day. You probably would have in the fifteen, you know, hundreds <laughs> if somebody had uh, done something like that. But it it shuts people off from even know, wanting to know who Muhammad is because they just associate, oh, well, if that's a person from the past or prophet of God that elicits this kind of response, I don't need to have anything to do with that. Um, so in your opinion, what is most understood by non-Muslims about the Prophet Muhammad? So there's a lot of misunderstandings, you know, and that would be a whole lecture or a whole interview in itself, to be honest with you. You know, there's lots of misconstrued ideas that the Prophet was a pedophile, for example, or, um, you know, the Prophet elicits war and hate and death and so on and so forth. So what I wanted to discuss is basically the idea that the prophet only brought again hatred death war evil but quickly to respond to your um comment like about the cartoons and the protests and so on and so forth i personally think that the way those people reacted was not correct and it was un-islamic because there's nothing wrong with speaking your mind and yes if somebody insulted my prophet then i would speak out but i would speak out peacefully you know, yes, let's hold protests, but peaceful protests, you know, like not we're not going to go burn buildings and, and shoot people down and throw rocks at people, you know, like that's very savage and very barbaric. So I personally blame those Muslims that thought that was a genius idea because 
people took your actions and based the entire Islamic faith on that. Now everybody thinks we're full of rage, we're full of hate, and the only way we solve problems is through violence. Now, to that end, do you know of any, and I'm putting you on the spot here, but I would assume that there was outrage at those cartoons across the Muslim world, and there was only a few isolated incidents of violence. So do you know of any responses that were peaceful, and what did those look like? I mean, there was a lot of, personally, the way I would have taken something like that is, you know, you write journal articles, you have academic discussions. You have peace again, like peaceful protests. Now I'm not going to tell you. I don't know of a specific protest and like a in a in a certain date or time that was held peacefully. Like because I personally don't remember the cartoons very well in terms of that. Like, I know it was a while back, but and I said I'm kind of putting you on the spot, so I can definitely look up some things. But I guess what I'm driving at is. If there were, you know, like scholarly articles that came out about why this is offensive to Muslims and those were published in several different places, that didn't get any attention in the mainstream media. No, All that got attention was the violence. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, if, if I had prepared for this basic question, then I would have given you proofs. You know, I would have given you articles, dates, times, when it was published, this interview, that interview. There's lots of positive stuff online. There's lots of academic discussions that were made. But again, the media only focused on this person burning this flag and this person torturing this person and, and the protests and the violence and so on and so forth. The way I view it, like again, back to the question, is the way I believe that most people view Prophet Muhammad is again a person of death, of war, of hate. And when you ask them why, they'll tell you, you know, there's very detailed verses in the Quran that say, you know, kill the disbelievers or kill them wherever you find them, so on and so forth. Or they'll tell you that he fought so many wars in his lifetime and there was no need for that. So they'll bring up good points. Those are very good arguments. But the thing that we fail to realize is context. You know, the Prophet did fight many wars, but none of the wars the Prophet fought were offensive. They were all defensive. They were all wars raged against him. They were all wars raged against the Muslims. That's why the Prophet was sent with these types of verses and these types of Quranic chapters, because it was based on the context of a war. So you can't just see a random person and tell them, kill the disbelievers wherever you find them. You can't just kill a random person walking in the street because of that verse, because it's clearly in the context of war. That's one. Two, the Prophet never had, again, he never started a war. He never initiated a war. They were all defensive. So the Quran does state, you know, verses to kill and so on and torture and all of that. But again, it's in the very context of war. It's in the context that it came down in historically, you know. So what I would tell people is, again, we need to read. We need to learn. Let's stop taking what the media construes and what ISIS throws at us as the Islamic faith. I'm not going to sit and tell you that, oh, the Quran doesn't tell you to torture and to hate and to kill and so on and so forth. It does have those verses. You know, it does, ha it does have those ideas there. I'm not going to deny it. But once you look at the actual context, the history, pre-Islamic Arabian culture, you want to dive into the Quran, you have to have these prerequisites. 
Oh, yeah. I think that's a very good uh, point. One of my favorite podcasts is called Hardcore History. And what um, this guy's version of the show or version of history is basically he says, I want to take a look at those times in history where you would not have wanted to be alive. And guess what? That's most of history <laughs> because yeah. the world has been a crazy, tumultuous place. Um, the thing I would like to say to the end of it saying that in the Quran is – Christians cannot, I'm not going to let them off the hook. There's plenty of violence in our tradition. And one of the ways that I've found to kind of make sense of all of it is that in the grand scheme of things, there's eternity and there's what happens here. And I think there's going to be a time when we're all on the other side and realize, wow, we were really overly concerned about this small period of time, which was our time on Earth. And when you have that perspective, suddenly things like someone being hurt or a loved one being killed, they don't have the same impact as they do here and now. Here and now, it feels terrible, you know. But to kill somebody in a defensive war um, that did save your people, that keeps the message going on and on. Like, when the slaves left Egypt, God took a lot of care of a lot of the killing, you know, himself, didn't even have people do it. But I don't think that that means that God is evil or that God, you know, hated the Egyptians or anything like that. I think uh, he just said, well, this is what needs to happen to progress how my plan is going. And God doesn't have the same view of death as people do. <laughs> I don't. Does I, that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I agree with that 100%. Um, you know, like in, in terms of that context, like the context of war, how much war has happened in the past hundred years? How many people have lost their lives? You know, and it depends on the perspective that you're, that you're taking, you know, like from the perspective, let's say of the U S or Canada, you know, somebody from Germany was considered the enemy. They may have been innocent, they may have been a regular person, but in the context of war, they were considered the enemy. You know, like it's, it's, it goes to show you that when we have a problem with a specific person or specific belief, we're willing to point the finger at them, but we don't realize that there's three point pointing right back at us. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's funny when I hear people say, did you see that terrorist attack and... Um, let's just use September 11th, and this isn't to make what happened sound like those people's lives weren't valuable and that what happened wasn't horrible. Obviously it was. But then I had friends in the military that would say, let's go to the Middle East and turn it into a glass parking lot, meaning drop nuclear bombs, you know, and so it melts the sand all into one sheet of glass. Very, very terrible thing to say, And but I don't think they're actually thinking about what they're saying. What they're saying is, I'm hurt. You know, I feel this pain and I want to lash out. Do they really mean, you know, a few thousand people died in New York, so we should go kill millions upon millions of people over in the Middle East? I just don't think that they think about what they're saying uh, when it comes to that. And probably a similar thing when people interpret those verses in the Quran to go out and do violence, they're interpreting their own pain and using that as an excuse to lash out. Exactly, exactly. That's also a belief that I have personally, and um, I can back that up with multiple articles and multiple studies done on ISIS fighters and so-called ISIS foot soldiers. You know, they all have criminal backgrounds. 
They all have psychological issues. So when you give someone that's, again, it's already angry at the world and, and you give them misconstrued ideas or um, traditions and, and uh, Quranic verses taken away out of context, you're basically giving a psychopath reason to kill. Yeah, well, it's you, uh, you studied psychology, right? Yes. So you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and you bring what's happened is their life has been destroyed. These children, you know, or even men my age, if my life got completely destroyed, I'd be floundering and looking for something to latch on to. And they find all those needs met, but they're just met in this wrong way. You know, that group really, if you, if I joined a terrorist group, I would have a sense of belonging. You know, yeah. I would suddenly have food and a place to, to lay my head. I'd have that physical safety that I desire. So, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said they have psychological problems. To that end, why aren't we dropping or mobilizing psychiatrists and sending them over, you know, to the Middle East? Wouldn't that do more than uh, than traumatizing more people? Exactly. I really do believe that. But, again, the mainstream idea right now is it'd be a lot easier to poke the finger at the faith. Yeah. It would be a lot easier to say they're the problem. Many people don't see or don't view this problem as a problem the way we do. It's also interesting to note that a lot of ISIS fighters are actually addicted to drugs. You know, the, yeah, the leaders yeah. are addicting them to drugs to stay put. You know, there's also um, a theory in psychology with cults. They deprive their members of protein. And when you deprive a human being of protein for a certain amount of time, it it kind of lowers their ability to think logically and they're more susceptible to just taking orders. So these are tactics, these are psychological tactics that many people are totally unaware of. You know, if you put all of these things and weigh them, no logical person that's, again, that has a sense of belonging, has a healthy body and a healthy mind, would resort to this type of violence. Yeah, and I think that comes out after, whenever there's a terror attack, a lot of that stuff comes out after the fact, but mm -hmm. it's not given the same trumpet call across the media as the initial event itself. I agree. I think that I've, I think we've probably only got time for a, a couple more questions. Um, I could probably talk to you all day. <laughs> I really enjoyed this. Um, I'd like to skip to the the last two that I sent you because I think it's important to realize that it isn't the Quran that's controlling these people. It's other damaged people. It's the blind leading the blind. So what is your favorite passage from the Quran? Because we'd love to hear you read it. To be honest, I have many. You know, the Quran is considered a way, like a book that dictates the way of life. So... Whatever you're looking for, whatever um, issue you may have, or whatever experience that you're basing your life on, like it'll give you a verse or a text for that for that context. But the one that I decided to choose today is the following verse. I got it in English. I don't know. It'd be kind of weird to say in Arabic. So it's from chapter seven, verse one eighty nine. It states, it is he who created you from one soul and created it from its mate that he may dwell in security with her. So here it discusses that the men and women, or specifically husband and wife, were created from one soul. 
we don't believe personally the sect that I adhere to that woman was created from the rib of man. You know, that she's good and and she's bent and she she needs like she she's incomplete, you know. We don't believe that. And I personally have like feminist views, so <laughs> the feminist in me kind of uh rages when somebody throws such a quote at me stating that, you know, I'm created from man's rib and I wasn't good enough to be created on my own. So this verse touches multiple bases for me. It touches, you know, the the love that I have for my husband that we were created we cre- we were created, sorry, from one soul. You know, that God created both of us and once we came together in marriage that soul was complete. So I look at it through that lens, but I also look at it through the lens that as a woman, I have a lot to give society. And my personal belief is when I'm told as a young girl that I'm created from the rib of man, they, that quote goes on to say that, you know, you're crooked in your bench, you're not supposed to straighten her, you're supposed to just accept her for her crookedness. Um, I personally believe that sex is towards me as a woman and it's not giving me my full platform to be who I am. You know, it's kind of like, okay, here, here's your issues, deal with it, well, you know? Yeah, I do, and I'm glad that you chose that verse and chose to express it in that way because one of the things that we didn't talk about was another Western view of it's easy to condemn Muslims and say, oh, look how backwards they are, look how they treat their women, you know. But it, from my personal perspective, I think I was watching this documentary where um, it was actually an Anthony Bourdain cooking travel show, and he. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, it, it's an older episode, but he goes to the Middle East, and um, they go to this chicken joint, and mm-hmm. it's actually separated where men eat in one part of the chicken restaurant and uh, women eat in the other one, and. Uh, she said, don't you understand? It's actually a nice thing. And she gives all this, these positive things. I, I mean, I use this on a board of to ask, just about any restaurant you go into, mm-hmm. you are going to have that single section and family section. Mm-hmm. The fact is they segregate. The sex is here. Mm-hmm. What do you say to a, a Western woman who automatically and instinctively is, is, would, would be very pissed off at this notion? When somebody mentioned that to me just recently, I was thinking... Oh, I never thought of it that way. I always thought of it as the way that, well, they're segregating the men. It's not like they're pushing the women off into the corner. They're taking the single men and pushing them off into a corner. It, it, it seems to assume the worst mm-hmm. of men's predilections, behavior, etc. That men will behave badly. They do. And that that, <laughs> that might be common ground, actually, with, with the, the, the people I'm talking about. What about the rest of the world? Will the rest of the world be better off this way what do you think i don't think that there's anything wrong with the way things are in um italy and france and the united states and malaysia and china there's the intermingling of the sexes everywhere in the world right. you know but i think that culturally things have been the way they are here for so long that it's going to take time for things to change if they do i feel it's a very family oriented society and so the family gets the upper hand kind of thing, Uh you know? Or or preferential treatment. Exactly. From the traditional Western standpoint, you could still say that still sounds oppressive. Mm -hmm. But listen to her. If If it really makes her happy and makes her feel a certain way, how can it be wrong? I could easily look at my wife 
and she wears high heels all the time. She loves high heels, you know. And if I wanted to spin the argument, I could be like, oh, you know, you're letting society mutilate your feet, you know, and you, you hurt every day. But if it makes her feel good and she wants to do it, how can I necessarily say that it's wrong? Same thing with the way that, please, I don't want to butcher it, but the hijab that you wear. If, to me, that would seem like a hassle, but that's only my perspective. And when it comes to you, there are probably things that you like about it. And th- correct me if I'm wrong, but it's an extra fashion accessory that you get to play with oh, yeah. for one. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Oh, yeah. Especially, again, when it comes to topics like this, I want people to see my side. And like you said, it depends on perspective. You know, like if you're looking at it through a Western lens, many people would say that I'm oppressed. When in reality, I feel more liberated than any Kardashian out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know what I mean? Like, let's just be as frank as, as possible. You know, I feel very liberated. I feel like I have much more to offer society than when I didn't have a scarf on. You know, and this is my choice. This is my belief. This is who I want to be. Now, I technically, I'll be very honest with you. I don't believe in that form of segregation that men and women should be totally separate. You know, like, for example, in, in right. the, the restaurant for chicken. But I sympathize with her because I understand, you know, when something might look evil to me or negative to me, that's not necessarily the case for the person on the other side. You know, because like, I live by that. I have many people that look at me and think that, what the hell is this crap? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. she's she's living in the third century She's totally covered from top to bottom. She's not modern. She's not this. She's not that. When in reality, when we sit down, we have a conversation. I'm just like every other person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a regular human being, you know? But the fact that you can't see my hair freaks you out. What are you telling women then? That their value is based on how long their hair is or how big their rear ends are? Exactly. Yeah. And if there was somebody that that's what made them happy, you know, to tease up their hair and do all that stuff, mm-hmm. then is it important that they're happy? Exactly. And I believe I believe that it's a choice to a certain extent. Like this is the, the hijab is a, a mandatory act, but there's nobody holding a spear to your head telling you that you're not allowed to leave the house. You know, because that's the way Saudi Arabia goes about things, or Iran. They don't mm-hmm. allow them to go out unless they're totally covered. So the rules are there. You can choose to follow them. You can choose not to. My sisters in laws don't wear scarves. You know, I have three sisters in laws. They wear tank tops. They're very, they're, they're not very modest in the way that they dress. I'm totally different than them. And we get along just fine. I consider them my sisters. And then you know? again, there might be a time where they do decide, you know, as they get older that, you know what, I've been kind of missing out. This does make me feel more comfortable. And as I get older, I mean, I'm in my 30s. You're quite a bit younger. You know, your your perspective really does change. And some things that you did when you were younger that you thought, hey, I'm cutting edge, you know, and I'm liberated and things like that. You you don't want to see your kids doing those same things, you know, and you kind of tend to retreat into those <laughs> things that make you safe. So it's very easy for, for people to pass that judgment. But to, to bring it back to your quote of the one soul, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because it kind of dispels that that myth of, well, the Quran says that women have to be inferior when in reality it does not. Not. <laughs> right. Listening to my podcast, they should know that the one thing I love to dispel is we are not inferior. 
So to wrap this up, I believe that all the religions on Earth, they at their core, it's all about love. And as a new mother, you're going you're gonna to find out there is such a deeper, new aspect to love that you couldn't even comprehend before because it's impossible until it happens to you. So I'm excited that it is. Um, but I wanted to wrap up on love. Through your personal relationship with God, what have you learned about love? I think this question was actually one of the nicest questions that I've personally been asked because it means a lot to me. You know, I feel like, you know, I've I've gone through hardships in my life and I've gone through trials and I've gone through tests just like every other person. And even though I never doubted God or I never questioned my belief in God, I did question his wisdom, you know. When you're in that tough situation, you're not seeing the positive side of it or what it could potentially bring you. But even throughout all of those experiences, once that end came and the problem was fixed or that experience was over and done with, I realized the wisdom behind it. You know, there was always a lesson, either a lesson to be learned or an experience to make me the woman that I'm having this discussion with you now. So what I've learned about love through my relationship with God is kind of like the way a mother is with her child. A mother with her child is very loving, very caring. But if all she gave that child was loving care and no discipline, that child was not going to grow up to be a successful human being. They're going to grow up with unrealistic expectations of society. They're going to grow up with some psychological issues. Some of them may even lack manners and being polite. So when a mother is disciplining her child, the child might feel like my mom hates me or I don't understand why she's going. She's putting me through these negative experiences. When in reality, the mother is just trying to create this beautiful human being, trying to cultivate this human being to be the best that they can be. Now, the way that I have learned about love is that it's subjective It depends on the situation. It depends on the person. But my experiences have taught me that in order for somebody to love you or in order for you to love somebody, it's not necessarily that you're always nice to them or you're always kind to them, but you give them what they need to grow. And that's the way that I've learned about love. And that's the way that I love my husband that's the way that i plan to love my children you know is that in order to love somebody you you want the best for them not necessarily to just be kind and smiley and and happy all the time you know that's what i've personally learned about love i think that's interesting because uh, if I can give you some praise, isn't that what you're doing with your podcast? You're not giving people necessarily what they want to hear, but what you think can can make them better and the world a better place. And isn't that you showing love for the whole world? Exactly. So. That's exactly the plan. That's, that's my goal. That's my message. Well, since that's your goal, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the Internet and uh, and where they can listen to your podcast and then anything else if you have something to plug. Okay. So my podcast is called The Muslim Pearl in a Western Shell. My episodes are weekly. They come out every Monday morning. You can find me on Facebook, Muslim Pearl in a Western Shell. I have Twitter at Muslim Pearl 813. 
Um, I have my own website, MuslimPearl.com. And if you scroll down all the way to the bottom, you can actually leave me a voice note of what you thought of our interview today or any of my previous episodes. And I'll actually receive them as MP3 media files and compile them into one episode. So that's my future plans. I'd love for your listeners to be part of that, to let me know what they thought of our interview. And um, just being here was absolutely amazing. Honestly, I, I loved having this conversation with you, even though it's been an hour and 20 minutes. But it doesn't <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? Well, I noticed that every time you sign off in your episodes, I think it's every time, you end it with peace be with you. And the funny thing is, that's all over my religion too, and that's all over just people in general, I think, saying uh, the hippie sign, peace, you know. (laughs) So it's a great send-off. So peace be with you, and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been a complete honor, and may peace be with everybody. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. That only took an hour of our time. Mine when I recorded it and yours when you listened to it. But already it was worth way more and gave us a deeper range of understanding in this topic than if we just pay attention to the same old, same old story from the mass media. Okay, so that was easy. But why is it important? The reason it is of such colossal import is that it was important enough to be written into the founding of our country, the freedom of the press. We all know it, we've all learned it, but have you ever asked why? If you're going to understand why, you have to understand that the media is supposed to play a role in our country, and not just our country, democracies around the world. There's a huge responsibility, and it has a secret name, this press, this media that we have. It's called the Fourth Estate. And where it got that name was from several intellectual thinkers a couple centuries past, one of which, Carlyle, who had said in the French Revolution, a fourth estate of able editors springs up, increases, and multiplies, irrepressible, incalculable. Incalculable. The idea that the press served as a check and balance because it was beholden to no one. But now who's it beholden to? Corporations? Greedy politicians? Bullies? 
sensationalism, their own self-interest. Personal foul, unnecessary ruckus, defense number 27. I hate to break the fourth wall here, high filers, but I did it on purpose. This was kind of the point that I wanted to drive at the whole time. Don't you see even my show that you're listening to and that hopefully was well executed and you found entertaining still relied on story structure? After all, our protagonist is this little-known, freedom-loving podcaster and his audience. The antagonist is the negligent, lethargic, and downright despicable mass media, the failed fourth estate. The conflict? We can blame every problem on the media. What have they done? What have they done today? What have they not done? How have they brainwashed people? How have they tricked people? How have they made people act rash and act stupidly in their day-to-day lives because of the nonsense they've poured in? That's the conflict. A nation full of idiots. The high stakes? Idiots can be dangerous. Propaganda worked great in the Third Reich. It was simple storytelling. They told a consistent message in every piece of propaganda they had. And look at the result. Those are the high stakes. But the point is... Even that breakdown that, that's just telling you a story. Everybody out there is trying to tell you a story. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you wake up your phone out of sleep mode, everybody's pushing their narrative on you. So guard yourself against every narrative by truly knowing yourself. That's the message of this program. That's the B-plot underlying this story. Know yourself at a level where you can get past your snap judgments. Where you can get past the knee-jerk reaction to sensationalist journalism. It's much harder to do than it is to say, High Filers. Trust me, I know. I've had a lot of experience with facing some demons in my past. So let me share a tip that can help. This is borrowed from the 12-step model. Many programs that rely on the 12-step model or to help people see themselves in a new light or a clearer light than they have seen themselves before. So here's the simple step. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. During this step, many participants make a list of poor decisions or character flaws. They outline hurt they caused to others, as well as feelings like fear and guilt that motivated some of their past actions. Once the individual has acknowledged these issues, the issues are less likely to serve as triggers in the future. Here's a good example. A father is at work all day. He has to deal with difficult, high-pressure situations, not getting the support or the pay that he deserves. All day he is frustrated, builds up tension, builds up tension, comes home, finds toys scattered all over the living room, where there is not supposed to be a mess. And damn it, he was at work all day, and he has to come home to this... So he blows up. So he yells, get the hell down here, clean up your fucking toys. What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? Was it really the toys? Is that really the underlying motivating feeling? No, he hates his fucking job. He's had a rough day. He is tired. But who's on the other end of that decision? Someone that had nothing to do with the root cause. Same thing with the news. 
how you react to it. Take a moral inventory. Do you really want to see the Middle East become a sheet of glass because you're angry or because you're afraid? It's okay to be afraid, it's understandable. But someone with courage doesn't give in to their fear. They do what's right anyway. But you can't do what's right until you identify the underlying cause. What I'm trying to get at is if you think all white people are racist, if you think that all Christians are bigots, if you think that a wall needs to go up because too many brown people are running into your country, if you think we need to drop bombs on the other side of the ocean in order for you to feel safe, what's really at the core of these issues? The best part is, I'm not going to give you a story structure to answer it. You have to answer it for yourself. That's what it means to take a fearless moral inventory. There's a poem that comes to mind. I first heard about it from ex-NFL coach Bill Parcells. When you think about some of your reactions and what might be the underlying cores, I want you to remember these verses. This poem's called The Man in the Glass. When you get what you want in your struggle for self, and the world makes you king for a day, just go to a mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. It isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. Some people might think you're a straight-shooting chum and call you a wonderful guy, but the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear to the end. And you've passed your most dangerous test if the guy in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. The funny thing about this show in general is it's kind of my continuous step four out of the 12 steps. I take a fearless moral inventory of myself and try to approach how I feel in a new way. Sometimes I still feel the same afterwards, but a lot of times I don't. And it's funny when kind of coming up with the idea for this segment, I did a fearless moral inventory of why did I even start this episode in the first place? What was the impetus for this whole, hopefully entertaining ball of wax you've listened to? And it was this. It was hearing people at my church discuss politics in the lobby over coffee. So we would hear one message in the sanctuary about loving your neighbor, loving your brother, helping the meek, helping the poor, helping those who can't help themselves. Then we'd go out in the lobby over coffee and you'd hear the political talk in an election cycle inevitably start. And the topic that really just bled my heart out was this whole Syrian refugee thing and how we're not willing to rescue thousands of people because there's an off chance, a slim chance, that somewhere we might have to lose some lives for it. And yet people praise firefighters, they praise policemen because they save some lives. But we as the voting public aren't willing to do that to save Syrian children, babies. 
because we're afraid of the big bad wolf? Terrorism won. Terrorism won. That was their entire goal, and bingo, they achieved it. Now they get to keep those people. They get to keep them in the pasture. Lambs for the slaughter. But I'm not necessarily even trying to go on a rant about helping Syrian children. What I'm saying is, when I looked at the man in the glass that was reflected back at me because of doing this episode, I realized, oh cool, I listened to a Muslim podcast, I did some research, I you know, had a great conversation and, and met a new person that uh, is a new friend in Khadijah. Wow, that's great too. I'm sharing this episode, I'm sharing this message. That's great. But that's pat on the back stuff. I didn't do anything to help those children. Not in a tangible, immediate way. Not the help they really need. So as soon as I was thinking of this point in the show, I checked myself. And I actually went and helped. I went to UNICEF. I made a donation that specifically goes to a fund to help those Syrian refugees who are caught in camps and have nowhere to live. No reliable food, no reliable medicine. The only reason I'm saying this is because we're all wrong. We're constantly wrong of what we think our true motivators and our true feelings are. But we can stop, check ourselves, take a look in the glass, and come up with a better way. Your feelings are valid, but are your actions? It's a question you have to ask yourself. Take a fearless moral inventory, high filers. It's worked several times for me this episode. And because I think this is an important message, and because I still feel deeply about the refugee situation, I'd like to propose kind of the closest thing this show would ever do to having some kind of a contest. But the contest isn't for me. The contest is for those kids. So let's try this as an experiment. And it will benefit me, but it's not the main point. Uh, So here's the contest. For every download and every listen that this show gets, I'll donate another dollar to UNICEF, to the Syrian crisis. But I also ask any inclined listener to do the same. So, by simply sharing this show, you can guarantee that you've at least increased the money that's flowing that way. But hopefully, through me being willing to pony up that dough, it's an exponential response. And more people give, and we really can do something to help one another. I hope you like this episode. I hope it gets you to scratch your head. I hope you learned something about the media. And I hope this M. Night Shyamalanian twist at the end didn't throw you for a loop. I just hope it gets you to take a look in the mirror. And then take the appropriate action that will allow you to look back into your own eyes in the future. God bless you, High Filers. Peace be with you. I've been a victim of a selfish kind of love.